Father, I'm always struck by the tangible joy of the Spirit that accompanies the gathering of your, of your body. Especially, Father, when we join with you in mind when it is to study or to praise or in some way, Father, worship and glorify your name. It is such a, a blessing in itself. How could anyone forsake the gathering, Father, when it brings so much joy? Father, tonight in your word, as we return to Isaiah... Father, we pray that, that we would be able to absorb all that you have provided through this man's words and, and through his ministry. But knowing, Father, the difficulty that, that it is to absorb your word, we pray, Father, that you would simply provide us with some measure of it tonight in, in a way that is personal and necessary for our walk and for our obedience. Show us, Father, what we are to know. And then, Father, give us the courage to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Give a chance to think about last week a little bit when you consider what we saw in chapter 6 with Isaiah's commissioning. This, this commissioning in which he was to present God's word to the people of Israel, but it was a word that they were not going to be permitted to understand. And that was in itself justice because as God explains in his word, they were committed to a covenant which if they did not keep, then God himself was not only within his rights to bring judgment, he was obligated to bring judgment by His own Word. So that now in this day, when He withholds mercy from them, and in the words of Isaiah, does not permit them to hear what Isaiah is prepared to deliver, He's actually keeping His bond and His Word, being righteous and just. And in the, in the wisdom of having worked that out in advance, He is permitting Himself the opportunity to extend mercy to the Gentiles at a later point, when if He had not withheld mercy from Israel now, they would have received their Messiah and the opportunity for the Gentiles would never have been so. The, the wisdom of it all, just the majesty of it all. Your mind, in my mind anyway, just, just keeps reeling as I consider how we put all that together. I read a, a couple of verses out of John's 12th chapter last week, but those same verses tell us something else which I didn't read last week. And I just want to start tonight by rereading that little section of John 12. John 12:37. he says this, but though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, meaning the Pharisees and, and the people of Israel, yet they were not believing in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He, was, he has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. In a future day, when the day is right for Jesus' second coming, for his return, God will remember that loophole in Leviticus 26 that we studied last week and by his own word in that statement will then bring mercy to Israel because they will have confessed their sins as was required. And of course, I'm referring back to what we talked about last week. And then they will know something that they do not currently know because God is not permitting them yet to know. And that's when Paul said in Romans 11.30, For just as you, meaning Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. So with Isaiah's commissioning having been established, now we're going to move into this next series of chapters that mark kind of division in Isaiah's book. If you have the first five chapters marked as an introduction, and I hope you do, then chapter 6 becomes the beginning of the book proper, and of course that showed the commissioning of Isaiah. The next series of chapters, 7 through 12, are commonly called the book of Emmanuel. That name comes simply from the use of that word, Emmanuel, three times in the course of these chapters, 7 through 12. And of course, we know the name Emmanuel describes the name of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, for example, we're going to see Emmanuel's birth predicted. Then in chapter 9, you hear of Emmanuel having come, meaning now we look backward in time at a birth that's already taken place. So, chapter 11 is Emmanuel reigning as king. So, for these little series of chapters, the focus here in 
one sense is the revealing of this Emmanuel, this child who is to come, and the effect and the purpose of this coming child. But throughout this, these chapters, he writes in a way that is so artful and so intricate. It's just amazing. And the more I read it, in fact, the more I studied it, the more I felt I was seeing the wisdom of God on full display in these chapters, because Isaiah will tell of a future historical event in Judah or in the northern kingdom, and in the course of describing that future prophetic event for these countries, for these people, he will weave in references to God, either delivering them from that judgment or, or causing the judgment. And then in the midst of these references of what God is doing in their historical circumstances, he weaves a second story in of how God will do the same thing spiritually through Christ. So it's this, I mean, you know, you'd have to have studied years in, in I, I guess, in journalism or, or in literature to figure out how to weave so much into so few verses and do it so artfully. And you have to unpack them. You know, on one level, they read simply like a history book or a prophetic, prophetically speaking about history. But then you start to unravel them and you realize there's a lot more going on. And this is just the wisdom of God on display in so, in so many ways. In these references, you'll find in these chapters we're going to go through, starting with seven tonight, you're going to find numerous references to Christ. That much we understand and, and would expect um, but these references will almost always take on double meaning. And the majesty of how Isaiah works both meanings together, it, again, goes back to something like Shakespeare. In fact, I think it makes Shakespeare look like a schoolyard poet compared to what Isaiah is doing in these chapters. So I, I hope I can convey that or at least give you a sense of it and let you go look at it for yourself. Chapters 7 through 9 also play on another motif, a child motif or a children's motif, meaning there's a lot of references to children, not just to the Christ child. So children tend to be a motif for Isaiah during these passages, during this section. And with that, you might assume a few things like childlike faith or regeneration and new birth. There's a whole motif around children that is coming out in the text. The first event described is this coming Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. If you know your history of Israel, you know that in Solomon's day, as, the, as Solomon's reign drew to a close, his sons fought for the kingdom and they divided northern kingdom from southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Isaiah is, is the true Israel, meaning they're continuing the true Davidic line of kings. They're in the true city of Jerusalem. They're still worshiping in the true temple God established, and they're still following the true Mosaic law with the true priesthood of Aaron. Contrasting all of that, the breakaway family of Solomon that went to the north, they've created a new capital in Samaria, They've established a new version of God's law, which wiped out all references to Jerusalem and wrote Samaria in its place. They established a new priesthood through a man who was not of Aaron's line, and they started a new king who was not from the throne of David. They bastardized, they counterfeited the entire process, the entire picture of what Israel was, and set up a false kingdom. Now, ironically, they called themselves Israel, but they were false kingdom. And it's why, in part, God judges them when he wipes them out through the Assyrian invasion and scatters them even to this day. That does not mean they're not Jewish, nor does it mean that their tribes are forgotten. It means that as a, a, a political entity, they had absolutely no standing in God's eyes. The only true remaining national entity that meant anything to God in truth was Judah at this, at this point. Now, with that background, we look at some events now in chapter 7, starting with chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Now in that one verse, there's a lot of history. Uh, so I have to explain that history, I think, to make sure we're all understanding it on the same page. King Ahaz, as we're told here at the beginning, was the grandson of King Uzziah. Remember King Uzziah from chapter 6? So we've moved forward in time considerably for the sake of this story from when Isaiah received his commissioning. This is no surprise. In fact, if you've read through the book already in some way, you'll know that he will move around a little. In this case, it's about King Ahaz, a terrible king, a grandson of Uzziah, who worshipped pagan gods, sacrificed his own son in a pagan temple at one point, uh, put idolatrous altars in the temple. This guy is in charge at a point when the Assyrian Empire in the north begins to exert its, its influence and its power in the region. During this reign, the southern kingdom of Judah 
was under siege from two enemies allied together against the house of David. These allies are, in the text I read, one of them is Aram and one of them is Israel. Israel, we know, is the northern kingdom. Does anybody have a Bible that says, instead of Aram, Syria? Okay, that's the modern-day name for Aram. So I'm going to start saying Syria because it's just a name we're more familiar with, but it's the same place. So, during the reign of King Ahaz, Israel in the north and Syria, which is even farther to the north, were allies. Now, they were not natural allies in the sense that they were naturally allied in historical terms, but they had become allies because in 734 B.C., they had felt the Assyrians to the northeast beginning to move southward and attack and take over countries in the region. And the only way that is Israel and Syria were going to defend themselves against this invading army was to create an alliance against them. But they weren't themselves strong enough, the two of them even, to stop Assyria. But if they could get Judah in the south to join the alliance, the three of them were probably going to be strong enough because Uzziah had built up a sizable force in Judah and all the way into Ahaz's day it was still there. So Judah was the real power and these northern countries needed their help. So in 734 B.C., Israel and Syria traveled south and attacked Jerusalem. That's what you see mentioned in verse 1. They came up against Jerusalem to wage war. Now, their military goal was to force Judah into the alliance. And the way they were going to do this was they were going to take Ahaz and depose him by force, take a a person who was sympathetic to them and put them on the throne as a puppet. Because they want the people of Judah to follow him, but they want him to do what they want. So they were going to put a puppet leader in place, sort of what the Russians used to do or did back in, in the 50s with Hungary, And they came in, took over, put their own guy in charge, and left. They wanted that kind of an effect. But they came against him. King Ahaz refused to be part of the alliance. They attacked, and the attack was rebuffed, and they didn't have any success. So they've successfully beaten back these two kingdoms. But at this stage, in chapter 7, verse 1, they're still hanging around. They're just north of Jerusalem, encamped. Ephraim is a reference to Israel, and Syria. They're encamped north of Jerusalem leaving the people in Jerusalem nervous for obvious reasons. Their enemies have been beaten back but not destroyed, and they're sitting out there, presumably waiting to attack again. That's where we find ourselves at this point. Now, King Ahaz faced a difficult situation, politically and militarily. The armies had been repelled, but they hadn't been defeated. They had regrouped in the north. Prospects of attacks still to come were there. And he's searching for a way to preserve his kingdom and defeat those enemies once and for all. Isaiah describes his fear, that this, this fear in Judah, in verse 2. Look at verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. That's referring to the Syrians camping north of them. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So, his options at this point are limited. Judah's army was not going to withstand attacks forever. They could eventually be defeated if the attacks continued. There were also new threats rising in other areas. Both Edom and Philistia, where the Philistines were from, were also looking at this situation with an eye toward their advantage. Maybe they could join Israel and join Syria and attack and take over Judah. So if they wait too long, it's only going to get worse. The king could seek his own alliance. He could go down to Egypt and say, Egypt, why don't you join me against these guys? or even go to Assyria and ask for Assyria to join in an alliance with Judah. Those are the options that King Ahaz had. At this moment, this kind of bleak moment, God appears through Isaiah with a message for Ahaz. He sends Isaiah to visit him with a better offer than any of the ones that Ahaz is considering at this point. Interestingly, Isaiah is accompanied by his toddler son, a boy named Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. What's interesting is, under these circumstances, you wouldn't think to bring a toddler along. It becomes significant later in the story. The Lord reveals to Ahaz in this exchange that God had been the one to defend Jerusalem against that first attack, and that God has promised to defend Ahaz and the house of David again. Here's how God brings that offer in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, 
Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram and Ephraim and the sons of Remaliah had planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So, the Lord sends Isaiah and his son, and God tells the king to be calm. I mean, the basic message here is one of do nothing. Just, just be calm. The two nations, he says, that have come against you are like smoldering stubs. A lot of smoke, not a lot of fire. And God, he said, was prepared to, to stop any future attacks. Now look at how he gives them that assurance. Kind of an interesting way of saying it. He starts by saying, the head of these countries are their seat of government. So, for example, he says that the head of Aram is Damascus. Well, Aram is Syria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. So he says, well, the head of these countries is their seat of government. And the seat of their government is led by this man, which implies that God can control these men, and as he controls these men, he controls these countries. And it's also interesting that God pointedly says they are the head of their countries, not the head of Judah. In other words, the the contrast being stated or being struck here in God's words is their plan can't succeed because their plan is based on the plans of a man, and I have that control. They're not plans that control Judah. They're plans that I am in control of. Isaiah also has this little parenthetical statement that's interesting. He says, in 65 years, Ephraim won't even be a people any longer. That's speaking, of course, of northern Israel, the fact that northern Israel will be gone, scattered in a future day. But what's interesting is the date. Assyria actually conquers them in 14 years from this point, not 65. 14 years from now, Israel is conquered by Assyria. But it takes another 51 years before Assyria deports and scatters the people that are in Israel. For that intervening time, they leave the people in the land. Those two dates are actually given in, in other books of the Bible. So, Now, as Isaiah explains, the Lord's offer here has a condition of sorts. Now, understand, he has made a promise to do something for the sake of the house of David. That promise has no conditions. But he inserts a condition for Ahaz personally. God said he would stop the invading armies from the north, But the king himself had to believe, had to trust in the Lord's word, in God's word. The word meaning in his promise to offer and to keep this protection. He can't place his trust in anything else. His trust had to remain exclusively in this promise that God was giving through Isaiah. He can't seek any other alliances. He can't make any other backup plans or have some other idea on how he's going to do it. It's an all or nothing offer from God. Now, as Isaiah says in verse 9, if you will not believe meaning in God's promise to defend, you, meaning Ahaz, shall surely not last. Which means that Ahaz's reign, or his ability to reign, will not last. God is still going to protect Judah from these attacks because he made a promise to David that the throne of David would never have anyone reign upon it other than a descendant of David. So as long as the throne of David is occupied, it will be occupied with a descendant of David. And if this plan had been allowed to succeed, at least for a time, they would have had Tabiel, whoever he was, sitting on the throne, not a descendant of David. So God is going to defend the house of David because of a promise he made to David, not because of anything that Ahaz does. But in the meantime, Ahaz has for himself a moment of opportunity. If he shows faith in God's word, then he will be allowed to stand. And without faith, you don't stand. Now, this is a demanding condition. I I understand in our context today, this may seem like a pretty easy thing for Ahaz to do. Oh, you said you're going to take care of it? (laughs) Makes my life easy. Go ahead. But it actually is a very demanding condition. And and Ahaz is not a believing man. We know that from his history, right? If he was to have any faith here, it's going to be put under pressure by the circumstances. Because if you think about the way God works, he tends to show up at the last minute. What we think of as the last minute. We would often find it preferable that he showed up earlier, right? But in the end, it often shows itself to be the perfect timing. We just have a tendency to get impatient about it. 
So there's going to be a real test put on his faith if he has faith in this word, because at some point he may start to wonder if he made the right choice. Because after all, you and I know these are the words of God. But to Ahaz, an unbeliever in the moment, he's hearing these words from Isaiah and his toddler son. Is it, is it something he should believe or can believe? So even the strongest faith, in fact, even if he had been a man of faith, you could see reason to expect his faith might waver, like ours does at times as well, right? So how could God help bolster that faith so that the man would have reason to hold steady in that promise that God has given him? Well, he graciously invites King Ahaz to request a sign from God, and then God showing that sign would give Ahaz something to cling to, let's say. Verse 10, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. A sign in Scripture, auth in Hebrew, O-T-H, it means, generally speaking, a miraculous manifestation of God's power with the intent to confirm His promise or prove His power to keep His word. For example, Lord gave Noah a sign of the covenant after the flood, the rainbow. Right? Miraculous, only God could do it. And the purpose in giving it, it wasn't a light show, it was to confirm a promise or give reason for us to respect God's word because we see He has the power to keep it. It's got that effect on men when you see a sign. So, what did Ahaz do in response to this offer? What miraculous sign do you think he asked for? Well, in verse 12, he refuses to name any sign. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. At first reading, that sounds very respectful, doesn't it? Very pious. Isn't it consistent, for example, with Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 6.16, where God is actually telling us not to test him, which is exactly what Ahaz is referencing by his words. He didn't state it as a verse, but it's clear enough by his words, this is what he's referencing. He's referencing the law, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So, as Ahaz cites the law's restriction as his reason for spurning the prophet's offer, for God's offer here, at first glance you may give this guy more credit than he deserves. First of all, keep in mind his character. We know him to be a man who killed his own son worshiping a pagan god and many other things. So in reality, Ahaz here is simply making excuses. Excuses for his unbelief. Folks, when the Lord offers us a sign, and I don't mean that he does this regularly, of course, but if he gives us an opportunity to request a sign, it's not a test to take him up on his offer. The definition of the word is not to take God up on his offer, okay? On the contrary, it would be a demonstration of faith if you're willing to accept a sign from God. You see, when you are in the position of demanding a sign, it is a test. When you are in the position offered a sign, it is a demonstration of willingness to accept it. I think he had already decided his plan. That in a sense, he had an idea of what to do and how he would defend the city. And he wasn't interested in getting involved in, a, in a, an agreement with Isaiah or anyone else that might com compromise his decision-making ability, the things he wanted to do. We know this from history. He had come to believe that Assyria was a country he could bargain with under these circumstances. So he decided to seek an alliance with Assyria against Syria and Israel. Of course, in this moment, he's not interested in God's promise. He's got a better plan. Instead of confessing a lack of trust to God and accepting God's offer, he speaks hypocritically here. His rationale for not accepting God's offer is what? The law of God. So hypocritically, he professes a respect for and an allegiance with God's word, while in the moment, not accepting God's word. It's a hypocritical statement. In many ways, it's exactly what the pious Pharisees were so good at doing. Manipulating God's word, turning it into something they could use to to, to benefit themselves in a fleshly way, never understanding it spiritually, much less carrying it out. God, as you would expect, saw through this whole pious act, and by Isaiah's words, he answers him this way, verse 13. He said, Now listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name... Emmanuel, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. 
Scripture says that King Ahaz was a man who, quote, tried the patience of men, and now he had the audacity to do the same with God. And therefore, God says, you don't tell me what kind of sign you want? Fine, I'll give you a sign. Now, at this point, we have to become a pretty narrowly focused Bible student to understand what's going on. And by that, I mean, I have to help you see what's going on in the Hebrew. There are subtle changes in Isaiah's words here that tell you a lot. In fact, they actually give you the correct interpretation. In verse 13, Isaiah begins to address, if you notice, the house of David. Up till that point, he had been addressing everything that was spoken to the man, Ahaz. It's confirmed by something in the Hebrew grammar. In our language now, we have a singular word, you, and a plural version, right? The singular form of the word you is you. The plural is what? Y'all. Right? Y'all. Now, when you, when you leave the country of Texas, they revert back to the more simple form of you, and then you have to figure out whether they're talking about just you or y'all. That's why they're backward. We figured that one out. We've solved that problem. Before verse 13, all the pronouns, second person pronouns, you and so on, have been singular. In the Hebrew, you can tell the difference between singular and plural pronouns in this case. So up till verse 13, you've been seeing a singular you, Ahaz, you, you, the man, Ahaz. Then in verse 13, it changes. Every Hebrew pronoun that I read in verses 13 through 15 are plural. In fact, if you change the you to a plural version and read it that way, you'll see the change in the sense. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for y'all to try the patience of men? I think we should have a Texas version of the Bible now that I think about it. Wouldn't that have made this a lot easier in the first place? And y'all will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you all a sign. You've got to quit laughing. This is serious stuff now. Behold. No, I guess if I'm going to do it the right way, I need to just go all the way. Look at here. You know, it's time for a vacation. It really is. Behold. No, I'm not going any further. So the whole point is, he's moved... If I get control again. He's moved out of the singular into the plural. It's obvious he's talking now to a different group of people. If you could read it in the Hebrew with me together, if we could do that, we would see the change. And it would be notable, wouldn't it? It would change your attentiveness. You would think, that's kind of odd. It's apparent that through Isaiah, God has started to move the conversation out of the moment and set it in a different context because of the plurals. Look at the sign now. This is a familiar passage. So many of us have have either heard it directly out of Isaiah or have seen it referenced in the New Testament. The sign involves a virgin. The word in Hebrew means a young woman who has never been married. Now, there are debates around the virgin concept because the Hebrew has different words for young maidens and young women and, and, and so on. But you can put this to rest right here and now. This word means virgin. It's properly translated here. There's plenty of cross-references in other places in the Old Testament where it's used. It means, literally, young woman who's never married, but in their culture, that means a virgin. It's a clear reference to a virgin girl. She will bear a son whose name will be with us God. That's the literal translation, with us God. Keeping in mind that this is a sign. God called it a sign. If it was not a virgin giving birth to a child, if it were just a regular woman giving birth to a child, my goodness, how is that a sign? It happens every day. What is not a common occurrence, obviously, is a virgin finding a way to miraculously have a child come out of her womb. That is a clear sign of God's involvement, of of miraculous involvement. That's what makes it a sign. That's why we know it's literally talking about a virgin here. Going forward from there. While the son that is born to this woman is still eating. The term here is curds. can also be uh, literally milk or buttermilk. Butter is maybe another way to say it. Those foods are not, they're, they're euphemisms. And just like we use them as euphemisms, they're not literally the, the food that the child was eating so much as they are euphemistic for infant food. We say baby food. Okay, That's the meaning of the term in the Hebrew. So while the son is still eating baby food, he already knows, look what he already knows, He already knows to refuse evil and to choose good. What's a simpler way of saying that? He's sinless. Do you know any infants that are sinless? I don't. So you see the picture, right? A boy born to a virgin mother who from infancy knows no sin. Pretty much a sign. Pretty much a miraculous 
birth. We know this to be a reference to Jesus, of course, to the coming Messiah. Matthew gives us a confirmation if we ever had any doubt. Matthew 1.18, when he's describing the birth of Christ or the arrival of Christ, in 1.18 he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. In Christmas time we always hear the story, right? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they had intimate relations, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That reference, of course, is to Isaiah 7. So, God in Matthew says that when that sign was spoken in Isaiah's day, it was a reference to this moment, undoubtedly. Here's another interesting Hebrew fact or Hebrew element here. The Hebrew definitive article in front of the word virgin is not a, it's the. And that's not accidental or meaningless. In fact, if you look at Matthew 123, which I just read, let me reread you Matthew 123. Matthew 123's quote of Isaiah is this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. That's how Matthew wrote it, because that's how it's understood in the Hebrew. Grammatically speaking, when you see a definite article like the, the virgin, the rules of grammar say you go back to the most recent reference to the same in order to find the proper noun that it's describing. Where do I go back in Scripture to find the virgin? Well, Isaiah said the virgin. Who was he talking about? If I use Isaiah, there's been no reference to the virgin. I can't find it in anything he's written prior to that moment, so he must be thinking about something that was already known in the culture. Some reference to the virgin that was already understood in the culture, and he's referencing it in this way because everyone already knows who this person is. Where in Jewish writing or in Jewish teaching would I go before Isaiah's day to find a virgin that he might have been meaning to reference in his writing? You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis. You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It's the only other mention of virgin in the Bible prior to Isaiah. Do you all know which one I'm talking about? In the curses that God speaks to woman, he makes a promise in the course of that. In the course of his response to their sin in the garden, he promises that there will be a solution for their sin, that he will provide a way out from their problem. Verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed. Not to get graphic, but the word seed in Scripture, in, in, in Old Testament Scripture, is a reference to the procreating element within the male body. All right? It's not a general term. It's a specific term. It means the part of the man that ensures that the woman is fertilized. Do women have seed in that definition? It's an oxymoron. Women don't have seed. Not in the sense of how the biblical writers mean it. So when it's said in Genesis 3.15, between your seed, meaning the progeny of the enemy, of the devil, and the woman's seed. What seed? Women don't have seed. How can a woman have a child without a man's seed? It's got to be a virgin. It's got to be a virgin birth, in other words. And in Jewish teaching around the meaning of this verse, the Jewish teaching in Isaiah's day was that this coming seed that is promised is of virgin birth. They had already established that as part of their own understanding of the verse. They didn't know who it would be. They didn't understand it involved Jesus per se. They understood that there would be a virgin birth through whom God would find a way to defeat the enemy. That's why Isaiah can write in chapter 7, the virgin, and, and know that his readers would understand he was referencing back to this point because in their teaching it was a common understood thing. At this point, in answering Ahaz's failures, God says, okay, because you won't name a sign, I will name a sign. And then he proceeds to name a sign that will not be fulfilled for seven centuries. How is that a sign to Ahaz? Well, the answer here comes in the fact that first he's speaking not to Ahaz. Remember, the words of this prophecy were spoken in the plural to the house of David, not to Ahaz in the singular. So as he opens these words up in response, he is going to give Ahaz a sign. He just hasn't gotten there yet. 
he starts initially by giving a sign to Israel. So these verses are being spoken beyond the moment. They're being spoken to a future moment, to a sign not to Ahaz personally, but to who? To Israel. What was the purpose of the sign to Ahaz? Go back to why he said, give me a sign. What was the sign supposed to do for Ahaz? Reassure that God was going to do what? Save them, defend them, be their provision, and defend them from their enemies, right? Ahaz didn't want a sign in his day, so God speaks beyond him in the moment to Israel and says, I will give you a sign to the very same effect. I will give you a sign that you can trust me to provide you salvation from your enemies, salvation from the threat that you have hanging over your head. But when Ahaz refused to ask, God promised the sign not to him, but to the entire nation, that the throne of David will see an eternal king come as promised. But he goes back to talking to Ahaz. He gives him a sign for his day. Now, it's hard to see this. It's hard to see that he has started to speak to Ahaz in the English. That's what I'm going to help you here in a minute. Let's read the verses. Verse 16. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring upon you and on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, at first glance, these verses seem to run together with the previous ones, right? Many people have mistakenly interpreted them to be a single monolithic statement, starting with Emmanuel and going all the way through, but they're not. First thing to notice is the Hebrew pronoun. What do you think happens in the Hebrew pronoun in verse 16? It goes back to singular. No more y'alls, now we're talking you. Ahaz, you. Secondly, the word for child in verse 14, that's hara, that means infant. Remember curds and whey, you know, eating curds and whey, that's a spider and a little lady, sorry. This is honey and curds. Those references are to infants. Infants eat baby food, the word hara means an infant. So we're talking about a newborn in verse 14. But when you get to verse 16, where the pronouns become singular again, the word for boy is na'ar, which means a lad or a toddler. It means a lad or a toddler. The word then is not a reference to Christ at this point. It's a reference to who? Sher Jashub, Isaiah's lad who is standing right next to him as he speaks these words. Which is why God at the beginning of this chapter told Isaiah, take your lad with you. Which would not have been a natural thing for Isaiah to do otherwise. Look at verse 15. The infant will know from infancy to only choose good. But in verse 17, it references, or in verse 16, I'm sorry, it references before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. It's the opposite problem. A boy who is still too young to know good only knows evil, in other words, because his nature is such. As a child born in the nature of Adam, he comes into the world as a sinful infant, like we all do. How can that be the same boy? Clearly it's not. The, the reference to child versus lad is another indication of that. But if you aren't paying close attention to those details, it's led to some really interesting debates about what does it mean that Christ could be both? Does it mean he had an age of accountability? You know, there's some really strange and funny, un- unbiblical teaching that crops up at this point because we don't understand that the person has changed from Jesus Christ to, Israel's, I mean, to uh, Isaiah's son. Isaiah's son is now the focus. So as he is speaking to Ahaz, he says, to the nation of Israel, a child will be born. To you, I'll reference your sign in respect to this child. It's just amazing how he's weaving similar things, but very different meaning on top of one another in the midst of this prophecy. So, before this boy, Sher Jashub, is old enough to do the right thing, these two kings will be dispatched, it says, by God. And as a result, it's a saying that in a very short period of time, these two kings are going to be gone. Long before this boy gets much older, basically. He's going to keep his promise to defend the kingdom. Now, because Ahaz didn't demonstrate faith in that word, what do you think is going to happen to Ahaz at this point? Uh, The way I put it is, because he was willing to get into bed with the Assyrians, now he's going to have to lie in it. By that I mean, we know historically that what Ahaz decided to do was make an alliance with Assyria, and what Assyria decided to do was take advantage, uh, in the same way that Hitler did Russia, take advantage of that alliance and come down and conquer them anyway. And God used Assyria for that purpose. Second Chronicles 28 tells us how it happened. Let me just read you the passage. You can uh, listen, I guess. Second Chronicles 28:19 describes how this happened, more or less. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So, Tilgath, Pilneser, king of Assyria, 
came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. You notice that? Afflicted him instead of strengthening him, which is what he expected him to do. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. He sold off the treasures of the kingdom trying to gain Assyria's alliance and it didn't help him, it says. Now, in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. So he adopted the, the, the gods of Syria. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces. He closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. So because he turned to the, Assyri- to the Syrian gods, he decided to destroy all the implements of worship and closed the doors of the temple so no one could worship in there. In every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Okay, so that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Isaiah describes that in the the rest of the chapter, 7-18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. I just love the language, the way he describes how Assyria is going to do this. Now, in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. For as for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. So he's describing here the effects of two kingdoms that come against Judah. You notice who they are? Verse 18. Egypt and Assyria. The two places he considered finding an alliance end up being the two places God raises up. I love the description. He whistles. This goes back to the earlier chapters where he talks about how he was going to call for somebody, a whistle for somebody to come and take uh, revenge or take judgment. This is the picture here. So he whistles for these two countries to come. Here's the picture in your mind. Where is Egypt, geographically speaking, from Judah? South-southwest, right? Where is Assyria? Far north, maybe even a little northeast. Politically, what happened was Egypt decided to take matters in their own hands and try to stop the Assyrian advance as they started to conquer and come south. So they ran out to meet them. And by that time, Assyria had already conquered Israel and had conquered um, Syria, as God said they would, as they dispersed those people. And at the point where they get to Judah, that's about the point where Egypt had met them. So they decide to have their little war right on the top of Judah. That's what this is describing. The fact that Judah becomes the playing field for a war between Assyria and Egypt. Verse 20, who's the razor? Right, it's a Syrian army, or, you know, particularly, but it's Assyria. So he's going to send Assyria in to shave with a razor. So how did uh, Jewish men wear their beards? Long. So to not have a beard was disgraceful. That the honor of the beard, the long beard, was a source of honor in the Jewish culture. So he's going to strip them of their honor, Right. And then he's going to shave the hair of their legs, showing your legs in that, in that culture was also a highly dishonorable thing to do. So it's all scenes of dishonor. And the shaving process, today we shave with uh, mechanical razors or uh, very sharp blades and lots of warm, foamy stuff. And right? Very comfortable experience. How do you think it, it was like to shave back then? Not so comfortable. Well, they would have knives, but it, it means... Right? So the experience of being shaved in that way, just the thought of it, hmm, not something I want to go through, right? So it brings both the picture of dishonor and of pain or discomfort. So it's in this, it's a great picture. It's just just a play on words, but it's an attempt to bring to the mind a picture of what God is preparing to do through these these, uh, examples. And the effect of it is what he's describing here, a total destruction of the land. There are so few cattle in the land after this is over, or sheep, that the ones that are left are described here as being kept alive for milk production. 
And then the people here eat curds and honey. Don't get in the wrong picture in your mind. This is not back to the time of Joshua where they said this is a land of milk and honey. What they're describing here is a people that are so destitute that the few animals they have left, they don't want to kill them and eat the meat. They have to live off of the milk and eat infant food. See the irony there? The motif of children again? Now they themselves are reduced to eating the food of infants because of their disobedience of their, of their leadership. He says here that the, the vineyards are going to be reduced to thorn bushes that result in people going out with bows and arrows. What that's a reference to are hunters. When you used to have a vineyard, you certainly didn't trample it hunting for game, right? You kept the game out. But when it's trampled over and destroyed and it becomes thorn bushes, well, the game can take over the land again. The only thing the land is good for anymore is to go out hunting for food. That's the picture of it. Uh, very rudimentary, rough living, not civilized farmland anymore. Why did the destruction come? Think about it just sequentially. What happened to make this happen to the people of Judah? Did the people of Judah refuse the sign? No, a king did. The king did. And yet, what was the effect of the king's refusal to accept the sign God had given or offered? There's two interesting sequels to the story that answer the question. The first, two decades later, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is now king. He's a good king, but he was also struggling with Assyrian domination, even in that day. They were basically still in control of the kingdom. They had a certain degree of control. What they had not done to Judah, as they had done to Israel, was kick the people out. But they did maintain a political control from a distance over this country. And any time anytime Judah threatened rebellion or revolt against Assyrian control, they would come down again and try to re-exert their influence. Hezekiah also had a tendency to to struggle with faith in God and trust in God at times, particularly under times of stress. So here he is still in this same state of struggling under domination. He repeats his father's mistake by rebelling against God's instructions. At a point in his reign, he had concocted a plan to rebel against Assyria or to go along with a plan. God told him specifically, don't do it. Don't want you fighting against my providence here. I brought the Assyrians down. You live with it. Stay calm, stay quiet, don't do anything. Receive my correction, basically. And what Hezekiah did instead was he went along with the plan to rebel. If you know the story, they come back and they camp outside and they start yelling over at the wall at the people who are guarding Judah and saying, is your king really going to save you? And there's kind of a little bit of uh, trash talk back and forth between Sennacherib, I think, who is over the Assyrian army. God brings a moment that's very interesting. Here's where the parallel is. In Isaiah 36.1, just a couple of verses. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent, basically his prime minister, a man named Rabshakeh, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. So, the, the king of Assyria sends his prime minister down with his army the prime minister comes out to meet uh, King Hezekiah. Where does this meeting take place? Look in verse 2, Isaiah 36, 2. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Does that strike any bells? If you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, these two men, Hezekiah and the prime minister of Assyria, meet at exactly the same place where Isaiah met Ahaz and offered him a sign which he refused. Ironically, what Hezekiah is dealing with in his day, this Assyrian oppression, is the direct result of his father standing in exactly the same place two decades earlier and refusing to obey God's word and, and do what he did. The second sequel relates to the virgin birth. And this kind of puts it together for us. When Ahaz stood and heard God's promise to protect his nation, God offered a sign to Ahaz as proof that God's provision would be sufficient if they would just trust in it, if Ahaz would just trust in it. Judah's leadership, in the form of this man Ahaz, rejected God's sign, right? Because their leadership rejected God's sign, God brought judgment not only against the man himself, but against the entire nation whom he represented. They fell with their leadership, right? And how did God accomplish that? He used a Gentile nation, Assyria, to exact punishment by utterly destroying the cities of that country and taking them over. Now, seven centuries later, notice the number seven. Seven centuries later, 
God brought the sign that Isaiah spoke to Ahaz in that moment, the sign of the virgin birth in Bethlehem. God gave the nation of Israel the sign that he had promised to give the nation back when he spoke through Isaiah. And that sign was of a child born of a virgin, and that would be his proof to the nation that he was going to deliver on his promise to them to secure a salvation for them from their enemies. Ultimately, from their enemy of Satan, the one whom this virgin was supposed to defend them against, as he spoke in Genesis 3.15. But in the day that that sign came to Israel, what happened among the leadership of Israel? The leadership of Israel in that day, just as Ahaz did in his day, refused the sign. They refused to accept the sign. They rejected God's sign, the child Emmanuel. And when Israel's leadership rejected God's sign, God brought a sign of his own against them. Jesus himself told them of the coming sign in chapter 13 of Luke, Luke 13, 34. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God used a Gentile nation. In this day, now we're talking about who? Rome. A Gentile nation, the Roman Empire. And that Gentile nation brought an utter destruction to Jerusalem and to the people of Israel, scattering them just as Assyria had come in earlier and scattered the northern kingdoms. So the parallel holds perfectly. What Ahaz did in the moment in refusing a sign, God brings a judgment in his day that is mechanically identical to the one he brings to the nation as a whole in a future day, which he brought to the nation in both days. But he brings it to the nation again when the second sign, which mirrors the first, is replicated for them just as he promised. He, he carries this out in parallel over seven centuries of time, both with the same result. Both a confirmation that unless you accept in faith God's promise to protect through a salvation that is of his own deliverance, you cannot rest in your own power to deliver yourself. Ahaz showed it. Hezekiah repeated it. The nation of Israel saw it happen again in Jesus' coming, as was promised. So in the beginning of the Emmanuel book, what Isaiah presents is the story of God's provision through a child in the face of a people who would not rest in that provision. And what he will show now through the series of chapters that follow as we complete the book of Emmanuel is how that will play out ultimately till he reigns as king in chapters 11 and 12. Okay, well, that's, that's it. My wife and I and family are gone for three weeks starting next week. So these are the dates in case you don't remember. Uh, we'll be back basically a month from today, four weeks from today. We'll, we'll pick up at that point. And uh, let's go to prayer and I'll, we'll finish tonight. Father, it's... Uh, it's always a good thing when men and women reluctantly uh, see a four-week passing before they can study your word. And uh, we do pray, Father, that that time would not be uh, without an opportunity to study, that in these uh, weeks that we uh, have uh, for ourselves, that we would find some other opportunity, Father, you would uh, show us something else and let us uh, continue on our own. But, Father, we do pray for an opportunity to return. Uh, four weeks, Father, may be a long time, but it's nothing for you. We pray that you would uh, plan our return a safe one, Father, and uh, a chance to reunite in, in this wonderful book you've written for our benefit. Let us go out from here tonight safely. And, uh, Father, let us serve you in uh, wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.